I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. It's an honor to be joined today by Dr. Laura Ellingson, a scholar, teacher, health activist, and a friend. Dr. Ellingson is the Patrick A. Donahoe Professor of Communication and Women and Gender Studies at Santa Clara University. She's the author of three award-winning books and dozens of journal articles and book chapters. Much of her work explores stories in the context of healthcare delivery. Laura, over 10 years ago, I remember contacting you and saying something like, hey, I have this idea about a narrative feature for the journal Health Communication. I'm thinking about calling it Defining Moments. At the time, I envisioned just creating space for people to name their worlds in order to change them. And in typical Laura fashion, you not only encouraged me to do so, but you generously helped launch the series with a personal story of your own. You went on to help edit Defining Moments. Now Jill Yamasaki at the University of Houston has joined the editorial team. And honestly, I don't think any of us could have imagined a decade ago the diverse accounts that would be shared. It's only fitting that you're by my side as I extend Defining Moments into podcast form. Thank you for your presence in my life, and and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been an honor and a delight to be part of Defining Moments. Our collaboration has been so powerful for me, and knowing that we're working together to make a difference for others and help get other stories out there has been really uh, just an incredible pleasure. So let's let's start there as we invite our listeners to to join our conversation. Why do stories matter, especially in the context of of health health communication? What do stories do for people? Stories are really important because they narrate our understanding of who we are, what our identities are, as part of families and communities, as students and professionals, in all parts of our lives, and in order to make sense of who we are. We also tell stories to make sense of what happens to us and what we do. Something as minor of, let me tell you about my day, right? Or something as important as, let me tell you what it means to me to be a professor, to be a researcher. Um, And in the context of illness, Stories are even more important because our story of who we are and what we do is interrupted when we have a major illness. Illness is not just a physical disruption. It's a narrative disruption. It's a, it's a biographical disruption to the story that we tell about what we are and what we do. The story gets turned upside down when we have a life-threatening diagnosis such as cancer. And the expectations, both short-term, like what am I going to be doing tomorrow? What, you know, what do I do? Um, for the day um, is completely changed, right? You're going to go to the hospital. You're going to meet with doctors. You're going to have scary tests you've never had before and that you don't know and don't know how to pronounce the name from. Uh, And as you go on into the experience, you learn about a whole new world, 
new places and new equipment and new people and whole new language. Words like chemotherapy and white cell counts require us to come up with new stories to make sense of what we're experiencing within that illness context. Mm-hmm. One thing I've I've always admired about your work is your willingness to to share your story with broader publics. As a teacher, as a writer, as a health activist, you've been very open, sometimes in raw and and edgy accounts. Um, and I believe it was in the late 80s that, that you were diagnosed with osteogenic sarcoma. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I uh, It was my sophomore year in college, and I'd had a sore knee. And I was treated for flat feet for, for several months, um, unfortunately. Um, thankfully, they still diagnosed me early enough to um, that I was at stage 2B in osteogenic sarcoma. Could have been a lot worse. But for a long time, it just didn't occur to them, to doctors, to test for something more serious. And eventually, I was diagnosed using a, a, through a surgical biopsy of osteogenic sarcoma in my right distal femur, meaning in the bone just above my right knee. And I ended up having two months of uh, inpatient, really intense chemotherapy where I had to be hospitalized for three days at a time um, in order to have that chemo. And after I went through six rounds of that, I had what's called limb salvaging surgery, meaning instead of having to amputate my leg, they were able to replace the part of the bone that had a tumor with a donor bone from someone who died and left their body to science and medicine. And they replaced that with a donor bone and some metal plates and screws and other kinds of hardware. And then that was followed by another 11 months of chemotherapy. Unfortunately, as many people are aware, chemotherapy really interferes with your immune system. And I had a series of really uh, dangerous staph infections in my leg, and that required them to remove the, uh, they tried a few times to stop the infected uh, tissue from spreading, and then they ended up having to remove the whole bone graft and put in a temporary one, finish up the chemotherapy, put another one in, and six surgeries later, my leg was very damaged. They were able to put it back together, but it was not working as well as we had all hoped. Uh, there's a lot of damage and scar tissue. I had a had to add a muscle graft and a skin graft to the to, as well as a second bone graft. My leg was a little too short short. It wasn't as long as it had been. I'd also had septicemia and blood clots and all kinds of other complications. Still, I made it. And I thought about a year and a half after I'd started a treatment, I thought, well, all I have left is a lot of physical therapy on my leg. And then after that, I will be well. I will be done with all of this treatment and I will just get to go on um, with my life. And I'm deeply grateful that I am done and was done with cancer treatment. However, um, that was only the beginning of my journey of having leg reconstructions. So every time I hear you talk about your experiences, I learn something new. And and that's the beauty, I think, of sharing stories and, and bearing witness to stories. So from flat feet um, to a, a bone donor, right? transplant right. and and then to a place of no evidence of disease um you've you've had a journey right? yes yeah and that journey continues today i think that's one of the um the tough but also really interesting and really important things to share with people is what's life after cancer mm-hmm 
why do you why do you feel so called to share your story? Why is that important to you? I think a couple of reasons. One of them is because I want other people to know that they're not alone, that the experiences that they're having, some of which feel very shameful and scary and violating, I want them to know that they're not alone um, in having those kinds of experiences. And it's a way to reach out both with my personal experiences and with my research to say, hey, there are others out there and we have we can be a community. We can offer support and we can offer understanding. We can empathize. The second reason also is I too get some affirmation. Um, when I put together different stories of different aspects of my treatment, um, how things went for me, what things are like for me now, um, very personally and professionally, I get a chance to put those experiences together into a coherent form, right? I get a chance to engage in sense making and to put different, um, not different versions, meaning that some of them were somehow false and are being corrected, but different versions being different parts, different aspects of my story that call attention to physical, um, emotional, relational dynamics, um, all different parts of my experience. And, and I want to put that out there because it lets me connect with others as well. Mm-hmm. In listening to you, I'm reminded of a couple of of deep beliefs I have about storytelling. I believe that all stories are partial, right? That we yes. can't ever get a complete truth. And, and we shift that story based on our own standpoint, on the circumstances in which we share that story, the purpose of the storytelling. So all accounts are partial. And that doesn't discount them, but it means that we have an obligation both when we share stories and when we hear them to understand that that's a partial representation of a broader life experience a Absolutely. life that will go on and change, right? That, that right. will shift. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So how you talk about your limb salvage surgery 10 years after the fact is different than how you narrated it for me in, in the midst of the aftermath of that. Right. And that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful aspect of the poetic nature of storytelling. I think so, too. And I, I think we can really honor what stories we need to tell at different times and in different contexts mm-hmm. and really appreciate the, the many different ways in which they benefit uh, ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. I feel tremendously called to bear witness to the stories of others. And I always learn a lot. Some stories I feel like become good companions. They're, they're friends. I carry them, I carry them with me, like what Kenneth Burke called equipment for living. They, they offer insight into the human condition. And one of your stories, um, the one that you shared when we launched Defining Moments in journal form, in your essay that was titled Salvaging, Surrendering, and Saying Goodbye to My Leg. Um, It's a beautiful title, uh, an even more poetic essay, and it lingers with me because I think it speaks to the narrative nature of how we experience illness, how we experience journeys through healthcare environments. I want to read a quote from that article. You say, How did I end up here? Did my surgeons or other physicians do something wrong? Did I? I don't believe so. 
Medicine is an imperfect art and continuous experiment in science. It comes with no guarantees, not that I would believe one if it were offered. Our collaborative artwork and experiments have kept me alive and reasonably functional for 20 years, and I'm grateful. End quote. Laura, I think this resonates so deeply with me because it reveals both the possibilities and the limits of what Arthur Frank labeled the restitution narrative. And the restitution narrative goes something like this. Through science and technology, healthcare specialists can restore the body to its original state. And this restitution narrative is deeply entrenched in healthcare organizing. It informs the goals of most care, healthcare decision making, the financing of care. And what I hear you challenging is right the relevance of of the restitution narrative in in all contexts. So my question for you is, why is the restitution narrative so potent, so powerful in the U.S.? I I think that's a great question, and it's something I've struggled with a lot because of my own complex experiences um, with illness and with my body. Uh, and because I agree absolutely that Arthur Frank's work on restitution narratives helps us to understand that there are ethical problems. There, there are real challenges when we have this one dominant narrative in our culture that tells us it becomes the larger framing narrative within which individuals try to figure out how to tell our own stories. I think there's two reasons primarily why the restitution narrative is so popular in the U.S. One is that as a culture, we just have an overwhelming belief in technological progress. We believe that um, science is always in the future and that all the progress always makes life better. Um, We focus on the new treatments and the headlines are always about the breakthrough cures. And we want to believe that all problems are essentially solvable through technology, including the biotechnology that is part of medicine. The second reason that we really cling to restitution narratives is because restitution narratives are very tidy. People in the U.S. like happy endings, but even more, we like clear, unambiguous endings. We want a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what restitution narratives say is, I was well, and then I got sick, and biomedicine cured me, and now I am well again. Right? That's the whole narrative. So you have to fit everything that happens to you into that um, box, Um, So before that, you were well, and then you're allowed to be sick and have problems for a very specified period of time from diagnosis through uh, proof of um, uh, no evidence of disease, right? And then you must go back to exploring your wellness. And in fact, uh, he even says that many people feel pressured to say that they're even better off having survived that experience. Mm -hmm. What What I see you doing in your scholarship, in the articles that you write, but also in your creative performance of your work for public audiences, is you're challenging the limits of this narrative. You acknowledge that we all benefit from it, that we've experienced certain parts of that, and in fact, we play a part in ensuring its dominance. But at the same time, you want us to pause and kind of think about flipping the narrative, flipping that, and really 
understanding um, survivorship, in your case, cancer survivorship, from mm-hmm. a broader perspective. Talk to us a little bit about, about what it means to, to, to shift that narrative, to flip it. Yeah. So the the restitution narrative ends up being the the only really recognizable dominant form for us and it limits it. So what I like to do is to push back and say, hey, actually that hasn't been my experience. I was well and I got sick and now I'm I'm kind of well, but I also have these these problems. There's a thing called late effects. There are, it turns out that the chemotherapy and the radiation and the surgeries and the other kinds of medicines and treatments that people have to save their lives from cancer have long-term effects that uh, immediately following treatment or as long as 5, 10, or even 20 years later, things happen to your body from those um, powerful treatments that we had to survive them. Yet the those kinds of things are uncomfortable. They're ambiguous. They're messy, right? What we have with the restitution narrative is triumph. I was sick, Uh, I am now well because of biomedical triumph, because of my own fortitude, because hopefully I had family and friends and community that rallied around me to make me better. Now, we do have an alternative that is at least acceptable to the um, restitution narrative, which was I got sick. I fought as hard as I possibly could. There's a lot of battle metaphors, right? I went to war, but it ended in tragedy, Right, because people die. Thousands of of children and adults die in this country uh, every year of cancer, and so we we are offered either the triumphant return through restitution or a tragic ending. And yet, those two options leave nothing for the rest of us. I did survive, and I am enormously grateful. I don't ever want to forget to say how much both the personal and the professional support that I have received um, as I've gone through my healthcare journey. Has meant to me. However, I live with late effects, which means that I did not have a couple of surgeries. I have had 17 surgeries. I did not have one life-threatening staph infection. I have had three, one of which was also a turned into or it was accompanied by a, a uh, strep infection in my leg as well. After all of those surgeries, I ended up deciding almost 20 years after my cancer treatment with a, a team of wonderful doctors and with my spouse and with uh, Um, you know, with a lot of careful thought, we decided to have my leg amputated instead of continuing the limb salvaging because it simply wasn't working anymore and it wasn't worth the risk of recurrent infection, um, which kept happening. And eventually you can get infections that cannot be cured, right? People die of staph infection in the U.S. a lot. So I ended up becoming an amputee and I thought, okay, well now I've got the ending to my story, right? Now I've got the, now I'm back to normal and I am going to live as an amputee, but it at least it's an ending. It's not quite the ending I wanted, but it's it's clearly definitive. My leg is gone. <laughs> well, that turned out not to be the case either. I live with a bunch more complications. Now I deal with the changing um, shape and size and um, um, constitution of what's left of my limb um, and the ways in which that interfaces in some very complicated ways um, with uh, using pro- different kinds of prosthetic legs. I also live with with really difficult phantom limb pain, um, which for which I take a variety of medications that make that complicate other ways and other aspects of my body. I take um, uh, um, three medications to deal with the side effects of my three pain medications. 
And mm-hmm. so it's not that I am not grateful, but that gratitude for my life being um, extended in some ways so wonderful. My whole career even has come out of these cancer experiences. Um, it's also more complicated than that. And I feel like we need to talk about those complications, that we have to get past the restitution narrative that is so much a pop part of not just cancer patients and survivors' individual stories, but again, of that dominant cultural understanding. Hi, folks. Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking with Dr. Laura Ellingson about her experiences as a cancer survivor. If you'd like to read more about Laura's experiences, I encourage you to go to the Defining Moments Facebook page at DM Podcast WOUB. There are links to articles we've been discussing. Laura's most recent book, titled Embodiment in Qualitative Research, is available on Rutledge.com. And I'll spell that for you, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E dot com. You can get a 20% discount on this book using the code capital I, capital R, capital K, 71. One more time, you can get a 20% discount using the code capital I, capital R, capital K, 71. What I also find compelling in in the way that you talk about your experiences is that you know you don't blame the healthcare system. It it wasn't the doctor's right. fault, the oncologist's fault, the surgeon's fault. This is life, right? Yeah, that's a really tough one for a lot of people. In fact, I've had people ask me why I didn't sue for malpractice. And, you know, two main reasons. One, I, I made those decisions together. I am not a pawn who my doctors manipulated. I had wonderful doctors, and the one time I had one who wasn't wonderful, I fired him and got a new one. I, I am a joint decision maker. But the other thing is that real life is just not that tidy. We made the best decisions we could with the information we had at the time that we had to make the decisions. And I still think we made all the best decisions we could, but sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes you fight as hard as you can and you don't get the desired outcome. Sometimes if 80% of people get better, the 20% is you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Amen. You you are um, gifted with using words, um, bringing the alphabet, right, into this wonderful dance, right, to, to yeah. express your experience. Um, I, too, am a lover of those words. But recently, you've also been using images to tell your stories. You've been working yes. with the American Cancer Society, and you're using a storytelling technique called photo voice to, to really open up audiences' eyes to survivorship, to enlarge our understanding of, of what it means to live, right, with no evidence of disease, but with long-term late effects. Can you talk to us about that technique of photo voice and, and what you're doing with the American Cancer Society? 
Sure. Yeah. So photo voice is a way of helping your research participants to set the agenda themselves, to really decide what it's important to them to talk about. So you invite people and I was, I've been blessed to have a group of 10 people who have allowed me into their lives and they spent about a month um, taking pictures of their everyday life. All I said to them was, please take pictures of what it means to you to live as a long-term cancer survivor. So someone who's f at least five years past no evidence of disease. And many of these people are 10, 20, uh, one is 30 years past um, diagnosis. Um, and what they did with those pictures is let me um, get a glimpse into what their life was like in a way that, that isn't, as you say, through language, it wasn't verbal. However, I then interviewed each of them and said with each of the picture, tell me about this. What does this mean to you? What does this connect to? How is this part of your daily life? And some of the things that they did with their pictures were, were um, not actually um, what I had had in mind, but were even better. They were mm. so important. Mm -hmm. they, they went to really key, important aspects of their life, their, their wedding, their child's high school graduation, winning a, a competition and the award that they got. They went to those special highlight moments of their lives, and then they were able to talk about them and to me about how meaningful they were and how special and that that's part of their everyday life is that they have great memories of things that they have been able to do since surviving things that happened before they survived right it shows the continuity and the disruptions that that your that your illness story is not apart from your everyday life it's part of your everyday life whether you're still going through active treatment or you have lived past that and unfortunately some treatments particularly radiation actually can cause secondary cancers. For example, you can get breast cancer from the radiation that saved you from lymphoma. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are living with these complications, yet they're able to show both very simple and mundane things. Here's my everyday breakfast table, right? And really complicated things. Here's me, you know, celebrating my choice of a life partner or the birth of my child or um, other really important aspects of their life. And they did it through photos. So I have worked with um, a visual artist to make an installation that we use at Relay for Life and um, for other people to interact with and see and to comment on. And I, I give a uh, talk every year in the survivor's tent during the Relay for Life um, event that I participate in about survivorship and how important it is to both celebrate survivorship, which is what the official um, approach to Relay for Life is from the American Cancer Society, is to really celebrate and remember and fight back against cancer. But I always want to say, and let's also deal with the realistic aspect of this. Let's talk about what it's really like. And so I do that and I bring information and handouts that people can use to talk to their doctors about late effects experiences they might be having. I encourage them to process the emotional um, aspects of living past cancer with each other. It, it is unfortunate that many cancer survivors end up with anxiety or depression and even post-traumatic stress disorder from some of the things that they had to go through in order to um, try in order to defeat the the cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm I've I've not had the pleasure of being at one of your relays for life, um, but I'll put that on my bucket list, Laura, mm -hmm. that we can experience that together. Thank you. What I have seen, though, are some of the photos that you've published in a recent article in Health Communication. And one that lingers with me 
was a simple yet riveting image, and it was a photo snapped by um, Daniel, who was 27 years old at the time. He was diagnosed with leukemia when he was 18 months old. The photo included his glucometer, his needles, pill bottles. The photo for me is just this stark reminder that Daniel has no precancer memory. He's 27. He was diagnosed at 18 months old. And these long-term late effects are are a part of of most of the chapters of his life. He's been dealing with this, right, for That's right. 25 years. That's powerful. That and and it's haunting. You describe some of the items in Daniel's photo as actants, right? And and that's a theoretical academic term, right? Right. Actant. For audiences not familiar with that term, what what do you mean by actant when you're sure. describing those needles, those pill bottles? And and why is that valuable as a tool for understanding the experience of survivors? Sure. Um, Actin is a way, a shorthand way for professors and researchers to talk about the powerful effects, the the agency, the the ability to make a difference that things, objects have in the world that are not human beings. So, um, of course, only humans have human agency or the ability to reason as people do and to make choices and to therefore um, make a difference in the world in their own lives and in others. But actins also have powerful abilities to affect the world. They are non-human but they are nonetheless um, agents. They, they have the abilities uh, or, or capacities to uh, very have very, very strong effects on our life. So for example, chemotherapy is an actant because it is able to exert a powerful effect on the human body. Now, some of that effect is really awful, right? I lost my hair. Um, it makes your fingernails get really brittle. Um, your your white cell count plummets, right? Which were the scary life-threatening infections that I had. But the positive force, the agency, the effects of that actant of chemotherapy was that it killed enough of the cancer cells that I was able, uh, after they did it repeatedly with some different varieties of chemo, what's called a cocktail, when they put a few kinds together at once, um, they were able to kill the cancer cells. And that was a tremendously powerful um, effect in the world. So it's a way of saying that objects and um, including biomedical treatments, we need to look at how powerful they are. Because in addition to killing cancer cells, which is the, the wanted, the desire, Desired effect. They also do things like kill other things, kill um, hair follicles and um, uh, stop the generation of white cells. And long term, they, they really slow down red cells as well, which is a, a really dangerous um, side effect that they compromise the immune system. They also do things like cost a tremendous amount of money to develop. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, that has a powerful effect, particularly in the U.S., where we lack a national um, safety net for healthcare, right? Where people often don't get treated until they are way past um, what diagnostic tests would have caught much earlier, right? They cost a lot of money. They they involve a lot of of um, power going to pharmaceutical companies. And my intention is not to bash pharmaceutical companies, right? It's it's to, although I do have my reservations about them. Um, in the for-profit medical system. But it's to point out that, again, there's a really, really powerful 
actant. There's an organization that has tremendous power to act. Thankfully, we also have organizations like the American Cancer Society, like the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, um, like the Live Strong Foundation, that try to help both individuals and groups of cancer patients and their loved ones and the healthcare providers who work with them to exert agency, to, to, to lobby Congress for more progressive laws, such as the aspect of the Affordable Care Act that does not allow insurance companies to discriminate about pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. Because once you have uh, had cancer, that's always a pre-existing condition. And that insurance policy is also an actant, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, a very powerful mm -hmm. force in the world that really affected my ability to access care. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly revealing that many of the photo stories that you have shared, um, both of your own experiences and those of, of people who have opened their lives to you, um, many of those involve these actants, involve material forces that right. interact with um, their own selves, right, to shape their experiences. And we have to understand and acknowledge those interactions between the material environment, our own bodies, um, as well as how we talk about and make sense of those, um, those actants and those bodies. That's correct. And in the ways in which those actants remain relevant decades after they were actually introduced into the body is part of what I'm really trying to get more of a national conversation going about. It, the chemotherapy did do its job. It did save me from cancer. Mm -hmm. And it also did some other things, mm -hmm. right? It messed mm -hmm. up my immune system. It caused problems. Uh, it allowed staph infection to take hold in my body. And it has caused all kinds of other um, subsequent treatments to be had. And I think that um, that talking about the word actant or, or talking about those material conditions um, and the necessity of dealing with how body people's bodies really, you mentioned Daniel, his real body right right now needs tremendous health care. He is only 27 years old, or he was at the time of the, the interview, but he already has um, a range of uh, very serious chronic illnesses that were caused because he had tremendous amounts of very toxic chemotherapy when he was only 18 months old until he was, um, until long after he turned three. Mm -hmm. And so all of those treatments are still affecting him. Those actants have long-term consequences. Almost three decades later, his body bears witness to the chemotherapy. And, and the glucometer that you mentioned is just one object that demonstrates the powerful effects of, of um, diabetes mm -hmm. in his body. Mm -hmm. And he, he expressed how he was like, wow, yet another thing, right? Mm -hmm. I go back to the doctor and one more thing has gone wrong and, it, mm. and there's another and another and another and and he talked about many wonderful things in his life too right but he mm -hmm. talked about how long term these actants affect are and unfortunately the restitution narrative that we talked about earlier doesn't leave room for that right mm -hmm. you got mm -hmm. that well they, we saved you from the cancer end of story and what my work is trying to push back and say is not end of the story mm -hmm. next chapter of the story right keep imagining a new normal yeah. yeah. Your work intersected with the efforts of a nonprofit, Turn It Gold, 
And I had the the pleasure of following and chronicling the development of of Turnit Gold's mission, right, as a nonprofit. And mm-hmm. it was really inspired by the the story of Charlie Dina, who is now a survivor, right, showing right. no evidence of disease, but like you and like most survivors, is dealing with long-term late effects, whether that's um, a lack of hearing, right, kidney failure. There's a host of of ways that bodies respond. And in the aftermath of that, his parents created a a nonprofit, and their goal is really to to raise awareness about long-term late effects. All of the funds that they raise are dedicated to really enhancing the quality of life um, for for kids living with cancer and and making sure that we're doing clinical trials with kids, right? So that the drugs and right. interventions that we're developing aren't ones that were developed for adult bodies, but but they're tailored for kids. But in in the process of producing and directing that documentary, um, I had a chance to to bring in your work, right? Um, because it intersected so well with with their efforts, and your story actually inspired their title, Realistically Ever After, um, to really talk about this need for a new narrative of survivorship. And, and that's a communicative challenge, right? Just as it's a challenge for the medical field, right? That's a way right. of changing the way that we talk about and make sense of these ongoing lives. So both in that documentary, Realistically Ever After, and a blog by the same name, you've really been trying to shift that narrative. Can you talk briefly about what that means to you? What Realistically Ever After, if you had to sum that up, what what that means to you? Yeah, I was really honored. I still am really to have been part of that project with the Dina family and the wonderful documentary that you made. And I was even more honored that you that you picked up on the language that I had used in the title. Realistically, ever after is quite you know quite literally a reference to the happily ever after um, common ending of a fairy tale, and they all lived happily ever after. And to me. Pushing back against that restitution narrative means saying, wait a minute, what is it a more realistic ending, right? Is that is that it didn't end and that there is an ever after, but it needs to include really wonderful and and really common, just everyday things that, that cancer survivors experience like all other people experience. Um and really wonderful things, but it's also got to include the difficulties. We need to, and I'm so honored and thrilled that the Dina family is, uh, through Turnit Gold, working to bring attention to and and research to um, what what happens with late effects. They've already, in, in some clinical trials, I have a friend whose uh, child got leukemia, and they've already started to try to do moderations in the way they give high-dose chemotherapy to toddlers who get leukemia in order to see whether maybe they could hit it really hard and then back off, wait and see and constantly test to see whether or not Mm. they need to continue 
right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and to be very, very watchful, but to see whether or not they might mitigate some of the long-term and, and awfully deadly um, side effects and, lo- and late effects of cancer treatment by um, taking more time and being really watchful and seeing whether or not um, the, how the disease can respond to the treatment. So to me, that's realistically ever after as part of the treatment stage. And then there's the realistically ever after. I have written about a lot of really mundane things in my blog. Like this is just daily life, right? I like to reread books because I sometimes find it very, very comforting not to have to guess what's going to happen. I like to, much like many, many small children do, I want to hear the story again. Tell it to me again. Comfort me again by helping me to to listen to a story that is familiar to me, that's become a friend or a way of helping me to cope and either through escaping or through assuring me that there is meaning in what I experience. And so that was one of the stories I've told. I've also talked a little bit about um, my marriage, which I feel very um, uh, blessed to have and and very um, just wonderful to have a partner who's so supportive of helping me to cope with my well-being. And so one story that's a little bit funny, but also very touching to me is um, the first time that I got the flu after becoming an amputee, I realized in the middle of the night as I was about to vomit that I could not get out of bed, right? You're very off-centered. Your balance is really off when you are an amputee, particularly since I'm amputated my leg way above my knee. So it's it's really off-centered. And I was so dizzy and so sick, I couldn't get to the bathroom. And then I realized, well, even if I managed on crutches to get to the bathroom, I can't kneel to, to, to use the toilet to vomit. Mm. And so I ended up waking up my husband in the middle of the night and going, help, help, I'm going to get sick. I need it. And he immediately grabbed a trash can and help me um, clean up, um, help me, you know, I kept getting sick over and over again, as you do when you have a terrible stomach flu. And something as mundane as a stomach, and awful, as a stomach flu was also a demonstration that this guy's got my back. He's right there with me. He's not grossed out. He's not being childish about it. He's just hanging in there with me and helping me to deal with yet another thing, which we didn't know until the middle of the night one night, which is that I'm going to have a little bit of trouble dealing with the flu, um, as well as some other things. So I tell those mundane stories and then I also talk about um, the fact that this is what realistically ever after looks like. I have a loving marriage and it's got some weird things in it um, and some some things that we've learned to adapt to um, and that, that my body is not just something that I experience. It's also something that my partner experiences um, as part of his daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, and my cats have had to learn to get used to it, right? To watch out for the crutches or to watch out for my prosthetic leg because I can't feel it, right? So we have to learn to avoid each other and to be careful when I'm walking. Um, cats can trip people who walk more typically than I do too, but it's, it's become just another, you know, aspect of what realistically ever after looks like in my life. And therefore I know in other people's lives as well. And I Mm -hmm. want them to know you're not alone. This is what it looks like to live after cancer Mm -hmm. or one way of living after cancer. Of course, everybody's a little different too. You bet. You bet. It strikes me that there's a movability to this argument beyond the experience of cancer because there are so many crisis and episodic experiences in health that go on to become chronic, right? Right. And so that notion of understanding that 
that the future that you once imagined is going to be altered and and that's going to continue to shift, right? That that once you get to the end of treatment doesn't necessarily mean that's the end. It might be something like a back surgery, right? And and the sure. rehabilitation might have a cascading effect in terms of it, it impacts other parts of your body, right? Um, and yeah. as you noted, it it impacts your family, it impacts your relationships, and and it also has financial consequences for the way that we think about how we fund care and, and what we fund. So I um, I think that... The importance of your work is not limited to thinking about cancer survivorship. It's it's much broader than that. It helps us to understand kind of what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable and ongoing shifting illnesses, vulnerabilities of our lives. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And I think that one of the um, aspects of of life now, right, where we have the privilege of being able to live past terrible diagnoses like multiple sclerosis or um, kidney disease, kidney failure, right, is that we can we can manage these things, but we can't cure them. And it requires the, the medical establishment to think differently about patients with chronic illness and for mm-hmm. insurers mm-hmm. to think differently about chronic care and to try to intervene in those stories so that people who do live with any kind of chronic condition can can find others, can find stories that resonate with them. Nancy Mares was an activist um, and a poet and an essayist who lived with multiple sclerosis for many years. And one of of the things she talked about was the power of Me Too, long before the Me Too movement, right? Mm -hmm. Um, She talked about, oh, Me Too, Me Too, the feeling understood, feeling that someone else has said. And I I resonated very powerfully with her work, even though I didn't have MS. So yeah, I really hope that Realistically Ever After can catch on to benefit people in a lot of different kinds of communities or who are living past other kinds of really difficult things, which might be, for example, mental illness or surviving a traumatic event like sexual assault and how they live realistically ever after. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Laura, in reflecting on our conversation today, what do you hope listeners continue to ponder or do? And I ask that uh, with a deep belief that, right, I am less interested, we are less interested in podcasts as episodes. We're interested in the process of podcasting. And that mm-hmm. means that that listeners are going to enter from their own unique standpoints and they're going to catch a thread and grab that and envision life possibilities in ways that we can't anticipate. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a process. Yes. Um, nonetheless, right, there could be intended takeaways and ideas. From your perspective, what do you hope listeners continue to think about? I really hope that people can think about how they might be unwittingly, not on purpose, but because we're so fond of and so used to the restitution narrative, how might you be unintentionally trying to get the people in your lives who you are mm. listening to, who you uh-huh, love, uh-huh. to get into that restitution box? Because that's what you understand, what makes sense, and it's what we expect to hear. I, I People tell me over and over again, wow, I've never heard of late effects. Uh-huh. I've never even heard of that. And yet we have tens of millions of people who've survived cancer. And yet when I talk to people, they've never heard of it. Uh, to me... 
what happens is that people don't feel welcome to talk about late effects. They don't feel like they're supposed to have them, and so they're not supposed to talk about them. We've been talking this whole time about the power of stories, and I know many people mean well when they say, but you're doing better now, right? You're able to go back to work. You're you're able to be with your children now, right? Things are better. And I hope they will do that and make space. Try to make room for the possibility that people are trying to also share other experiences. Are there things that are not going quite as well? Are there other things, you know, that you're still struggling with? Or what did you take away that, that maybe wasn't all positive? You know, really asking people and trying to bear witness to the difficult parts as well. When we we really push people to be heroes, right, to, to have triumphed over science we with science sorry to drive over cancer with science we do that in order to help them feel good but when when life is real right it's more complicated than just that heroism it's uh-huh. also a lot of continued suffering and sometimes that's emotional or, or cognitive other times it's physical sometimes it's all three of those things so make some space in any way that you feel like you can so that people can express the complexity of their lives what else is happening besides the triumph no evidence of disease and what else Uh uh dr laura thanks so much for joining me today and helping us at woub and the storytelling institute launch the defining moments podcast Um, a special um a special thanks to you because for those of you who who know Laura or I know that um, we have a fondness for Diet Coke and I asked Laura to abstain because (laughs) carbonated beverages and cold beverages constrict your vocal cords and she graciously agreed so you did this right you riffed with me with no Diet Coke I did, and it was a sacrifice, but it is one that I was happy to make and would make again for the honor and the, really the pleasure of getting to talk with you mm. about the importance of stories in the world and the power that they have to really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DMPodcastWOUB. On our Facebook page, we will provide links to some of Laura's written work, including articles and books we've discussed, a link to the documentary that she's featured in, and of course to her blog, Realistically Ever After. Thanks to all of the the listeners who've joined us today. Go in peace and, and love one another.